Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. I'm Edwin Davis and joining me as always through the miracle of satellite technology is Matt Risby. Hi Matt, how's it going? Hey man, uh, I'm, I'm buzzing with indifference at the BAFTA, <laughs> the BAFTA uh, results that have uh, just come in, mm. um, which uh, has, has seen the film that we all love, Three Billboards, outside Ebbing, Missouri, win in categories that, you know, I can accept it as winning in some categories, but it started to win in categories it really shouldn't win, like Best mm-hmm. Screenplay and Best British Film. And Best Film in general. Yeah, I'm, yeah. I mean, that's that's degrading to film. <laughs> yeah, it's very... I mean, we talked at length about why we didn't like Three Billboards in the episode that ended up being our Oscar episodes about us intending it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, when we got, like, 20 minutes into having, like, ranted about the things we weren't happy with, and we thought, okay, this is probably the episode now. <laughs> We're not slowing down. But, yeah, it, it be winning for screenplay in particular feels... Uh, like a slap in the face to Shakespeare himself, to <laughs> the, the entire history of of English drama, because it's not it's not a very well well written film. It doesn't handle its themes well. It doesn't have too many interesting kind of like lines of dialogue or uh, or, or kind of well rounded interesting characters. Yeah, it's just everything about it just feels wildly misguided, mm, expositionary, obvious without any kind of nuance. Mm. Um, but other than that, it's fantastic. Mm, other than that, yeah, sure, give it best picture, why the fuck not? Mm. Um, Who else uh, was was the big winners uh, tonight? I mean, uh, Gary Oldman won for, for best uh, Churchill, which was, mm-hmm. I mean, that's at the BAFTAs, that's a, that's a nailed, nailed on kind of, mm. uh, that's a sure thing. It's always a tough category in British film, like there's so many Churchills every year. Yeah, uh, ev- there's the the dog uh, mm-hmm. and the cigarette. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure there's some others. There was wasn't there another movie that came out last year that was just called Churchill and starred like I want to, not Albert Finney because he has played Churchill before, but there was some Timothy uh, Spall, didn't he? He no. played him in The King's Speech. It's oh, basically yeah. every, every British actor once they get to a certain age and weight instantly the Churchill scripts start to kind of like flood in. But yeah, there was one that also about Churchill, which was very much the the deep impact to this one's Armageddon, <coughs> it seems. But yeah, it didn't get much traction uh, to such a sense. I can't remember which. Uh, maybe uh, Tom, what's his name? Who's... Hiddleston? Uh, no, not quite there. Give it 20 years. Hardy? <laughs> mm, oh, he could do it. He, he's known to drastically change his body. He could play the young Churchill. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, like the, a young, sexy Churchill. Mm, yeah, this Churchill fucks. Um, <laughs> uh, the one who won, it was nominated for an Oscar for Michael Clayton, who always plays Americans, played LBJ in Selma. Oh, Tom Wilkinson. Yes, I was. I, I think he may have played Churchill in that one. If not, a Tom Wilkinson type. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Wow. There has really been a lot of Churchill movies. I wonder if any of them, like you know, spend any real time getting into, like, how Churchill approached uh, the Indian subcontinent. Mm. Uh, not, um, oh, not that often. <laughs> no. And, you know, uh, how he was uh, kind of pretty keen to collect, uh, protect colonial interests in, in Africa. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It's, always, it's always about, it's kind of like the, the few years that he was a good prime minister in the war. <laughs> and never really kind of goes on the rest of his uh, life, which was uh, pretty checkered. Yeah, I mean, there's there's bits of that in Darkest Hour when they talk about, like, his failures, failures at Gallipoli and things like that. But even then, it's like, uh, really, they're just saying, like, oh, you know, he was an underdog. You know, mm. he was he was uh, rising up back on his feet, in the, the words of Survivor, to uh, really kind of take it to Hitler when no one believed in him, uh, as opposed to being like, yeah, kind of a genocidal maniac who lost his job at one point for being terrible and mm. then, then turned it all around. Yeah, it, it gives credence to that whole, that kind of joke about politicians in a room who are 
things aren't going well for them, one of them says, what we need is a war, a mm. nice winnable war. <laughs> um, I'm not saying that that's why the Second World War happened, but, you know, I'm not not saying that. It, did, it didn't hurt his legacy. <laughs> yeah, it really, really, it's like, you know, when Tupac died, he said that, <laughs> didn't he? <laughs> well, how do we get a Tupac from, from Gary Oldman? He's going to play him eventually. Mm, yeah, he'll play him in the uh, movie about Tupac's kind of life in Cuba post, post-death, post putting out mm. albums. <laughs> yeah. It, um, it's theories are to be believed. Uh, but yeah, like, like we said, Gary Oldman won, um, Francis McDormand also won, and Sam Rockwell both for three billboards, which are kind of expected. And like, if you're going to begrudgedly say that there are good things about three boards, three billboards, <laughs> the, the actors are kind of the things you would point to, but it's still... It's like good acting for bad characters doesn't still still doesn't feel like you should uh, reward the fact they made the best of a bad situation. And uh, Guillermo del Toro won Best Director for Shape of Water, which kind of seems to be what's going to happen at the Oscars at this point, or he certainly emerged as the frontrunner, which, again, I didn't see happening at the start of award season because there's not a huge amount different between Shape of Water aesthetically and tonally than, like, Crimson Peak. Mm-hmm. And Crimson Peak didn't catch fire with anyone. No. So it's been very weird to see that that's how it shaped out. I mean, I really like the way Shape of Water is directed. It's a really beautiful movie. But, yeah, it's just weird how that's happened. Mm, yeah, I, I kind of... How long is it to the Oscars? It's a couple of weeks, isn't it? Uh, it's like a month, early early March. Right. Oh, yeah, so it's like yeah, like two or three weeks. I think final voting for the Oscars is is in the coming weeks. Right, okay. Does the BAFTAs give us any indication of who's going to win? Because generally the BAFTAs kind of sway just to whoever's British. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah, I think they like to, because they've moved them now before the Oscars, because it used to be that they would happen afterwards. Uh, I think they would like to think they're a bellwether and that they're into, they can maybe sway some uh, voters. But I think it's more a case that they're the last major awards that happens. So they reflect the narrative that's already been in place. Right, okay. So I don't think... I think it maybe gives us a good sense just because they're following the lead of, like, every other major awards body at this point. Mm, yeah, yeah. I just kind of... Uh, now, I kind of just want award season to be over. Because um, mm-hmm. after... The, I think I feel like we've peaked with the Oscar nominations because they were super exciting. Yeah. All those, and but now I just want him to to kind of like peter out in that kind of sad, grim predictability that that we're not going to enjoy any of the winners, and it will just be safe choices, and we can just forget about it and add it to the rest of the years that have gone by without yeah you know, anything exciting happening. The the only thing that I think because I don't think that three billboards is likely to win best picture. This is like. Uh, obviously, this is something that's going to look like complete idiocy in three weeks' time. But because I think that something like Get Out probably has more of a kind of social imperative to it in terms, or a cultural imperative, or even something like The Shape of Water, just because it's you know it's about the move, it's kind of about the love of the movies, and it's got this kind of nice fuzzy message of acceptance and you know kind of the celebration of the marginalised rather in society. Maybe it feels like more of a, a fit for what Hollywood wants to say about the cultural moment, but uh, and that you know the cultural moment in America is different to the one in Britain, even though they are both uh, chaotic and defined by divisions along kind of like political lines, often around like issues of race and immigration. But mm. the ways in which British culture and American culture are reacting to those things seem a little bit kind of different over here it's a lot more heated and people i think are a bit more willing to say that the other side are racist whereas Mm -hmm. i think you know obviously i'm speaking as an outsider about my own country which is weird but like what i see of british coverage of the brexit debate is there are a few people are a little too unwilling to say that people who voted for brexit probably did it for racial reasons Mm, yeah well because at the end of the day even though we're unhappy we're still english Mm, um, and yeah. we still won't kind of just say exactly what we're thinking because it's just too weird and awkward for us. Yeah, you don't want to say that the house is on fire because it will reflect badly on the host. <laughs> yeah, exactly that. But kind of related to Three Billboards, which obviously I think our feelings on that film in general are pretty well established at this point. Mm-hmm. 
the thing about it that's interesting when I was watching it, and I think that got a lot of attention, was the actual images of the billboards themselves. The very stark red billboards with the accusatory words on it. And as I was watching the movie, I was thinking, you know, this is actually a really incredible idea. I'm surprised more people don't do this to Mm -hmm. bring attention to an issue by putting up these kind of really stark messages. Uh, And uh, people apparently also thought the same thing because people have started doing it. And there were a couple of interesting examples of it happening just in the past week. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, We've had uh, the, the one outside was kind of to draw attention to the, the injustice uh, being suffered by the, the people affected by the Grunfall tower fire. Mm, yes, uh, in the UK, and then over here in the US, we had uh, in relation to the um, school shooting at Parkland uh, in Florida earlier this week on on Valentine's Day. Uh, people have put up billboards outside the office of Senator Marco Rubio of Florida, saying uh, "slaughtered in school and still no gun control." How come Marco Rubio? Yeah, it's really fascinating to see that particular element of the movie, which is obviously the most striking and visually startling part of it uh, bleed over into real life and i wonder if that'll become something you just see spread across the entire country particularly as this particular school shooting seems to be one that people in general are not willing to kind of just move on from which is kind of the the, the sickness of america is that these things happen and then people just kind of like move on until the next one happens but the conversation around this one doesn't appear to be dying down, which is obviously a good thing for people who believe that people shouldn't have access to weapons of mass death, you mm. know, more easily than it is to rent a car, you know, uh, or buy a Kinder egg. <laughs> I kind of think that the only way it'll end is if it goes full circle and someone puts three billboards outside Martin Madonna's house, say <laughs> just, you know, terrible film, all these awards. What the fuck? <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean that's like that could happen. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, if not, I mean, how much? How much are billboards, Ed? Like ten dollars? What could they cost? Yeah, let's let's get a GoFundMe going. I'm pretty sure <laughs> we could raise the money enough just from film Twitter alone. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I think, and the only other kind of like major news story because this whole week has been do- dominated by uh, on the entertainment, on the kind of real world side, you know horror and death and terrible things uh and you know it's kind of overshadowed the entertainment side of things and most of it has been about marvel and about black panther and its impending release and the film is out there now and it has done fantastically well so our main subject this week is black panther now before we get into kind of a discussion of the movie's kind of like plot and 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 everything apart from its its huge success let's establish a little bit why Black Panther in particular is is so special because obviously there have been movies with black superheroes before. Obviously you've got Blade most significantly, you know, is probably the most successful. And you've had blockbusters where the lead is black. Obviously, yeah, Will Smith was the biggest star in the world for, for about 10 years. But I think what is really significant here is, you know, it is a superhero movie where not only is the the lead black, but most of the cast is black. The director is black. The his co writer, I believe, is also black. There is and and the movie's you know setting and story are distinctly about you know a a black world, a black country. Everything about this movie culturally and the amount of money and marketing might that's been put behind it is it, it makes it unique. Mm, yeah. Whilst we can say that, you know, Blade um, was a, you know, really clear forerunner for this kind of thing, but then mm. also something like Hancock, yes. um, which, you know, at the point where Will Smith was a huge star, he did something that was kind of weird and it doesn't really work, but like it could have done, it could have been, you know, the start of something special. And But like, it was a big budget movie with a black superhero star who also happened to be like a weird alcoholic type kind mm-hmm. of character. But it was... Um, yeah, the reason this is important is because, like you say, it seems to be like a celebration of black identity and black uh, excellence and black culture, which is something we you can't say about Blade and 
uh, Hancock, they happen to be superhero movies with a black star. Um, mm-hmm. And the cool thing about Blade is that it's Wesley Snipes, a fucking vampire with a samurai sword. Yeah. Um, and whilst there are certainly things you can look at in Black Panther and say that was really cool, they also happen to have like a slightly deeper cultural significance. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, at the time we're recording this, um, the, on the Sunday after it's opened, the film has opened to $192 million in the US, which, to put it in context, is the fifth best opening weekend of all time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in terms of Marvel weekends, it's only just behind the first Avengers movie. Yes, it has kind of come from like people saying, oh, the pre-sales are going to be strong. Mm. To, oh, yeah, this could do, you know, 100 million. Or this could do 140 million. To, yeah, it's really going gangbusters now. And the exciting thing is, is whilst it's doing a lot of business domestically, it's actually doing really well elsewhere. It's done amazing in the UK. Mm. And it's kind of just, like, knocking down all those arguments that a black-led, black-made film wouldn't sell abroad for example it's not going to open big it's you know it's not going to have like you know cross demographic appeal and just all of these things are just unsurprisingly turning out to be utter nonsense Mm, yes and i think it even within kind of like the arguments that marvel have put up for you know it, it makes their kind of squeamishness about getting behind characters in their catalogue who maybe are from, you know, different minority groups or, you know, a majority group in this form of women. The idea that those movies, you know, can't get made because people won't come and see them. It's like, well, demonstrably, that's not true because Mm. we've had a movie that is not only based around a black character and, and a black superhero, but which takes place in a world and a setting which has almost no white characters at all. Yeah. I think one thing that is noticeable, which I don't really think the people who make the films understand, is that, like, the geek dollar doesn't exist. Like, mm. films films can't... The thing, films that are just supported by nerds who like comics will not be very successful. Mm. It has to have a crossover appeal to other yeah. people, right? Yeah. So... The thing is, is that the people will just support the brand. They know that Marvel films are good because they've seen a couple of good ones. Mm. Like, they could not give a shit that Guardians of the Galaxy is an obscure comic. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter that, like, uh, you know, we. I remember even us at the time were like, well, you know, it's a big risk. They're not a very well-known um, uh, kind of team. There's a talking raccoon and a tree in it. Whereas the majority of people just thought, there's a new Marvel movie coming out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The end. Like, <laughs> they're successful, period. It doesn't matter which ones they pick. They could pick, like, a hyper-obscure one. It's still a superhero movie. It's still going to follow the formula. It, people will still like it. People will still go and watch it because that's what happens. Mm. And particularly, Marvel itself has become such a, a machine for mm-hmm. generating these movies and therefore money that... Like, like you say, it, it almost doesn't matter what the material is that people will go and see it. You can get Ant-Man to kind of leg it out to $180 million, mm-hmm. uh, even though people don't really care about that character and don't have any prior knowledge or relationship. Enough people will just take a punt on it. They'll say, yeah, sure, why not? I'll check it out. It's a new Marvel movie. So when you combine what Marvel has built up over the last 10 years to a character and a story which have an appeal to an audience that is, you know, horrifically underserved by Hollywood and you make it an event and you say, okay, this is a, this is a movie that works for everyone, but it has an, a special meaning for black audiences. Mm -hmm. Then you have, and when the movie's good, which helps as well, then you have a recipe for something that can be a cultural event, which I think Black Panther would always have been, even if it had opened to those initial estimates of like 100, 120 million. But the fact that it turned out to be a really excellent movie and a really interesting movie, it it explains why it has connected in the way that it has and why it, I think, has a pretty good chance to be the biggest movie of 
the year mm. in, in a year where we have a kind of question mark about how well the new Star Wars is going to do. Yeah. It, it, this now suddenly seems like the sure bet mm-hmm. against the, uh, the, you know, the troubles that Lucasfilm have had getting the, the Han Solo movie done. Um, mm-hmm. Going back to your point about Marvel churning them out, what I was really noticeable uh, about when I went to see it on Wednesday was sat down to watch the movie in a packed cinema as it was completely sold out, as were the, the screening beforehand and afterwards. And the trailers began and uh, I saw four trailers and, all the trailers were Marvel movies. Mm. Um, so I saw the trailer for Ant-Man, uh, Infinity War, Deadpool and Venom, uh, mm. all of which bore the Marvel logo. And at one point my wife turned to me and said, are all films Marvel now? <laughs> um, because she has, she's never seen a Marvel movie at the cinema, I think. I think she saw the last, she saw the, the Avengers and she's seen the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, but that's it. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, and in two of the, two of the trailers, Josh Brolin is the villain. <laughs> um, which made it even more confusing. But yeah, it's it has become a cultural event. The various premieres around the world of which the cast and crew have been attending in like traditional dress and things like that, and that mm. has led to audience members turning up in vast numbers wearing traditional dress is like yeah. super cool and something that I personally have never really kind of experienced before other than well, like people going to the Phantom Menace with lightsabers and swinging around in the air mm-hmm. but like that's actually meaningless uh, <laughs> isn't it essentially but uh, this has connected in, in a real way mm, and I think a large part of that is because Ryan Coogler who is the, the director and the co-writer I think he made a surprisingly personal movie within the Marvel framework, which is kind of designed, and this was very much a problem that it had sort of a couple of years ago, particularly during the second phase of of the MCU, was, uh, you know, that the movies could feel a little cookie-cutter and impersonal. Mm -hmm. Uh, Very much the case where, you know, you could hire, like, Alan Taylor, who had just directed a bunch of Game of Thrones and, and... a load of HBO shows and just slot him in and he would do a job on a Thor movie. Whereas, you know, more recently, like Ragnarok had a, a, a great showcase for Taika Waititi's personality, as we talked about on our episode on it. And this one, uh, it feels like the movie that the guy who made Fruitvale Station and Creed would make if you said, okay, here's like a couple of hundred million dollars to make a superhero movie. Which is a great uh, compliment to to him because I think he, in terms of like, you know, entailing this story about a African country which is kind of is hugely kind of powerful but isolationist and has this Amer- essentially American character come into it to try and kind of question the established order and you know says that why hasn't this country used its power to make a difference in the lives of oppressed black populations around the world, you know, allowed the colonizers uh, and the slave traders to kind of create all this great systemic racism to then essentially have you think that guy has a point, Mm -hmm. which is not something like a lot of the discourse around it, certainly online is a lot of people just kind of saying like, you know, Killmonger's kind of right (laughs) in in what he's arguing uh, and the film itself, you know, in kind of how it resolves also seems to agree that yeah he 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 has a point maybe he takes it to an extreme but you know he is he is not wrong to say that this this country should use its power to kind of intervene in the world more and I think the fact that Ryan Coogler was allowed and given the leeway from Disney and Marvel to do that is a large part of why it's connected because people are being presented with a blockbuster that is you know kinetic and exciting but also at least that expects you to kind of expects you to exercise your mind a little bit while watching it. Yeah, I mean, it is a Marvel movie, mm-hmm. and we can't escape that. There are certain formulaic elements to it, um, particularly as an origin story. Yeah, which is exactly. Yeah. at this point. Yeah, and it's hard to get away from the origin story trappings. I have to say, but it has a lot of things that the other Marvel movies don't have. Uh, like you say, it's got a villain that feels human mm-hmm. and that who has clear motivation. It mm-hmm. also has something that Marvel movies tend to lack, which is tension. Um, yes. And the reason that Marvel movies lack tension 
is because they don't really have stakes mm. because most Marvel movies follow the formula of Marvel hero X is trying to defeat Marvel villain X who has MacGuffin X, which is going to end the world. And mm. obviously we know the world's not going to end <laughs> because then there would be no more movies. Yeah. And we have a lot of movies to come out. So the last couple, like Thor Ragnarok, obviously by taking place way outside of, you know, you know, it's just like a little side adventure, really. It feels like a side quest movie. Um, mm-hmm. But we know that they're coming back into it, whereas whereas the Black Panther takes takes us to some interesting places and, and puts the characters in peril to which you feel, you know, I'm not sure how they're going to get out of this one. And mm. especially new characters that you're introduced to that you are connected to because they are very well-drawn characters. Uh, and, you know, I really hope that we're going to see all of those in Infinity War. His uh, sister, Shuri, was my favourite character in the whole film. I thought she was amazing. Yeah, mine too. Um, but I was like, so help me God, I'm going to kill someone if she dies. Um, <laughs> and like, and the the job that they did with it with the film was that they built the tension to the point where I thought that that could happen and, and it could have happened and it would have been satisfying dramatically, but also devastating emotionally. Um, but they, you know, it, it just worked, um, for a, for a film. It also puts pace to the argument that like, it's a risk giving an indie filmmaker money mm. because a good filmmaker is a good filmmaker. Like, and it's just, it's not ultimately about talent. It's just how do they handle pressure and, yes. and expectation. And if you think about the expectations being put on Ryan Coogler's shoulders from the moment he took <laughs> this job to the moment at which, you know, six months ago when like, the first trailer dropped and everyone said, well, this is going to be like a generation-defining generation moment in black history <laughs> and therefore <laughs> American history. And then you're like, fuck you, yeah, I haven't even finished this film yet. So that is, you know, obviously he's delivered and he has delivered you know, handsomely, but he has proved as well that he can handle any kind of pressure and expectation put upon him. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when you consider where he was like five years ago when he made Fruitvale Station, which was his feature debut. He made a movie for less than a million dollars that, you know, takes place in Oakland. I think was primarily shot there, which, you know, is, is where he's from. And it was a very personal movie to him, I think, because, you know, he he's very young. He's only 31 but at the time that like Oscar Grant was killed, he was pretty much the exact same age as Oscar Grant. And so I think he and, you know, a lot of uh, young black men and young black people in general in America saw what happened to Oscar Grant and thought, oh, yeah, that could be me very, very easily. You know, that could happen to me. And, and that has uh, been played out in American history over the last nine years that a lot of that has been a lot of young black Americans have died at the hands of the police. Uh, to be from that making that very small personal movie five years ago to making kind of a mid-budget Rocky sequel that he made very personal because he was he was essentially writing about his relationship to his own father in the Rocky Adonis relationship to this. It's kind of uh, incredible to see him make those leaps. And like you say, it's down to talent and an ability to not crack completely under pressure, uh, pressure in a Josh Trank sort of way or uh, to not just kind of completely blow it the way that someone like uh, uh, Colin Trevorrow did, you know, post-Jurassic World. Mm, yeah, and kind of the world's his lobster now. He can pretty much do anything he wants, which is a position which directors will fight tooth and nail to get themselves into, and he's done it in three good movies by mm. putting his head down and just, make, you know, doing great work. Yes, and he he has, I think... It's not the highest grossing movie ever by a black director because that is uh, Fate of the Furious, mm-hmm. which was directed by F. Gary Gray. But uh, it's certainly the biggest opening weekend ever for a movie directed by a black director. And it is pretty... I think it's got a very good chance of being the highest grossest probably by the time we record our episode next week. Because, uh, yeah, this thing... The, the response to it has been so overwhelmingly positive that it's hard to imagine that it's going to slow down. Like, I mean, we're not, I, I, I hesitate to say that it's going to do like Force Awakens numbers. You know, it wouldn't surprise me if it ends up north of 600 million when all is said and done. Mm. And if it does well globally, I saw a piece 
online earlier today talking about how this, if this is successful alongside Coco, um, mm-hmm. it kind of proves that films with casts that perhaps don't look white mm. <laughs> um, and themes don't look so white bread can sell really well, in, especially yeah. in places like China. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Then, again, that's just another argument that's been, you know, knocked down. And, and the thing is, is, is great bits of work and art open the door. Um, and I just hope that, given that how much we've complained about how stale the the Marvel movies are, as good as enjoyable as they are to watch, they are. Mm. It is like watching a soap opera. You tune in and you just see the characters that you like do something and just kind of engage with it to a point emotionally. But after that, it's gone. I hope that we now see people trying to elevate the form slightly, do different things and hear stories from different voices. Yeah, I think that is one of the things that's really impactful about it for me because I was thinking about it today that what makes it feel different to most Marvel movies other than the, the kind of the the cultural aspects of it, the fact that this is unlike any movie that Hollywood has ever put out before. You know, there's never been this much marketing and production money and might put behind a movie with a predominantly black cast made by a black director. And for me, like when I watch most Marvel movies, like I watch them and I enjoy them. And then there's kind of like a fizzy sense of, ah, I've had a nice night out at the movies. And then by the next day, I kind of struggle to remember much about them. Even the ones I really enjoy, like, you know, like a four Ragnarok or the, or even the, the first Avengers. Whereas this one, like I had that sense of like, oh man, that was really good fun. And then I've just kept thinking about it since then. And part of that is just kind of like thinking about, the fact that it's a movie that has a sense of history to it, like Wakanda feels like a real place. Mm-hmm. It play, like plays with its own traditions. And as you're watching it, you like the, the whole idea of the waterfall ritual where people can challenge the new king to for, for who gets to be the new Black Panther and the new ruler of Wakanda and stuff like that. You know, you see it happen a few times. So you become used to the rhythms of, uh, uh, of the rituals and you think, okay, this, this feels like a thing that, that has, a huge amount of weight to it and that people have have codified over a long period of time. But also I think a part of it is that it just has so many, like, like you said about like, like, um, like Shuri, uh, you know, it has so many of these fun supporting characters who all feel real, who all feel like really developed that there are lots of like little things about it that just keep coming to back to me and make me think I really, I really, I really can't wait for the next movie in which we get to see those characters again. Because even though some of them get a great opportunity to kind of be fun and engaging in this movie, particularly uh, her, Lupita Nyong'o's character, and Dana Gurira's character, I still feel like we didn't gain enough time with them and I want to see them do so many more things. Mm, and we know that some of them appear in... Um, Infinity War. To be honest, if I was in a Marvel movie and I didn't appear in Infinity War, I'd be pretty <laughs> pissed off. But I have to say that I could probably do without Martin Freeman's character, whoever that is. Um, mm. I'm still not entirely sure why he was in this film. I mean, I do like Martin Freeman, but I mean, obviously, he gets a couple of good jokes made at his expense. Yeah, um, but I'm not entirely sure what why he was in there. Yeah, he kind of seemed to only be in there because he had been in Civil War. Uh, and they give him a little bit to do in the finale. But yeah, mm-hmm. he did feel like a character that could have been replaced with any other character. And it would have worked just as well, if not better. Mm-hmm. As good a performer as Martin Freeman is generally. Uh, it didn't seem like in this this movie, you really needed the guy from the CIA to turn out to be you know a good egg. And because a fighter it, pilot. Yes, yeah. So it, he didn't really feel like a, a hugely necessary addition to the 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 film, you know. At least like Andy Serkis's character as as Claw, he was, you know, engagingly terrible. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 whereas, uh, you know, in terrible in the sense that he's a really bad person. Not that he was like like his performance was was fine and and did the job of kind of providing the entryway for for Killmonger to kind of enter the story. But yeah. 
yeah. Martin Freeman, even like on a functional level, didn't really seem that necessary. And that, that I mean, the movie kind of makes a joke of it when, uh, spoilers, uh, after T'Challa has nearly died and he's in that kind of, uh, that ice uh, box, essentially, just barely keeping him alive. And, uh, you know, uh, his mother, sister and ex are essentially, you know, kind of doing the ritual to bring him back to life. And he just kind of is standing off to the side with uh, Umbaka, the, the head of the, 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 the mountain drive. And they kind of, he doesn't really seem to know what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the movie kind of plays up with that. Like he's, he's like, he's, he's made to kind of turn around and just look awkward, which obviously is something that Martin Freeman has more than 20 years of experience doing <laughs> at this point. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah. Like uh, the movie kind of plays that off as, as kind of a joke that he's even in it, but even then, it doesn't feel like... It feels like, you know, another rewrite and replacing with another character would have been fine. Yeah, yeah. I think it just felt a little bit like a clumsy use of a character um, that in one quick scene that we're told that he's a pilot and then all of a sudden he's using his piloting skills to bail out mm. um, the guys in a kind of... A, it, didn't, it just didn't feel like it needed it. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was nice to see Andy Serkis acting like as himself, unless it as was a, a weird motion, motion capture of himself. Yes, yeah, oh, that's always possible. He looked, he looked like he bulked up quite a bit. I don't know if that's just because he had his arm under his shirt, but mm. um, <laughs> yeah, possibly he did. He did look m- like m- more of a substantial person than he usually does. But I don't, maybe that's just because in my mind he's always just like in the Gollum motion capture suit when he was all like really lithe. Mm. Which uh, maybe he hasn't been for for quite a while, but he certainly felt like uh, a physical threat, particularly during the the chase scene in Busan, which uh, was uh, one of the highlights of the movie. I thought that that chase scene was pretty great, really fun and inventive, uh, and I really liked having listened to the soundtrack uh, in anticipation of of seeing the movie. Uh, I got very excited when I realised that was where the track Ops was going to be used because that song is is pretty banging. Mm. Uh, it also features one of the best visual gags when Lupita Nyong'o is sliding down the road on just <laughs> just her car seat still holding a steering wheel. It's, yeah. like, a, it's like a Buster Keaton gag or something that is, <laughs> is executed so perfectly. Yeah, um, and It's like delightfully done. Here's a mm. kind of question. The supporting cast are—they feel so well-rounded and likable. I found myself at times, when spoilers, um, T'Challa is uh, indisposed by being dead, um, oh, that I yeah. was like, I could just carry on watching everyone else, but mm. <laughs> they could just elect yeah. a new guy. I could actually have the sequel be uh, his family and friends trying to depose Killmonger, who, who, like you said, has a point. Mm. Yeah, I did find myself. Because like, then, obviously, like his the, his supporters all kind of like go off to the mountain tribe to kind to seek help and everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, when uh, the Jabari, I believe they're called, if I remember correctly, yeah, I did remember when they find like they're shown that oh he is you know barely alive. I thought oh yeah he's the star of this movie mm. and like just having that little bit of of forgetfulness because it's not like Chadwick Boseman is very good in the role, but. I think it seems it seems um, appropriate that having been like one of the highlight, the breakout stars of uh, Civil War and one of the most interesting characters there, that he's kind of a little more muted here to kind of give everyone else a chance to shine. Because we all kind of, we already have a relationship with T'Challa and kind of know what his deal is. So it feels like you don't need to focus too much on him because you need to introduce the broader world of Wakanda to to audiences uh and like you can't do that by it's a lot easier to do that if you have a very kind of stoic lead than if you have someone who's like too eccentric or too like like it's it's very much kind of like the Luke Skywalker principle mm-hmm. like in a new hope Luke is a perfectly fine center for the movie but he's you know, Han Solo and Chewie and Obi-Wan and Leia and Darth Vader, they're all more interesting. Mm. But as you have kind of a solid base to kind of carry the rest, of the, the, the to introduce you to the world. Mm. Um, have we seen what Marvel's plans are for Black Panther? Is he, I mean, they normally plan these things out so far in ahead, uh, so far in advance and, and announce them. They're like, have they said there's going to be a Black Panther too? It seems an inevitability. Yeah, I think it's taken as 
as as read that there will be one, but I don't know how it fits into their broader cosmology i guess i think it, it it largely depended on how well this one was going to do so i think that question has been removed uh you know it's it's done very very well it's got some of the best reviews of any marvel movie and is you know a cultural phenomenon that has been driving the conversation for weeks and mm-hmm. uh, since since certainly since the reviews came out a week before it was due to be released which some people at the time questions like why are they even releasing reviews now it's like well because this movie is uh, something that's very anticipated, and I think it, it generates a lot more hype and attention if people can look at the Rotten Tomatoes score as as uh, benighted as that uh, site is. Um, you know, it's being able to see that it's already well over 90% a week in advance can get people more excited. Um, yeah, I think it, they would be they would be insane not to make more, as many movies in this universe and in Wakanda as they can. Mm. Uh, particularly if, like in the sequel... Uh, they were to explore like in Tanahasi Coates' run on on Black Panther, which has been uh, very very good and has kind of been running over the last couple of years. Uh, that starts off with T'Challa really struggling with the question of how to be a just and wise ruler and the problems of balancing like being a king versus being a man and like sometimes your emotions carry you to places that probably aren't the best from the 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 position of trying to rule a, a, a country and you know it force makes you exercise your power in ways that are kind of abusive particularly you know if you're a king by definition you're an autocrat it seems like that would be a good direction to kind of push in particularly considering the political and philosophical arguments advanced in this movie where they're questioning the notion of what wakanda's role in the world is so it would make sense in, in future movies to question T'Challa's role in Wakanda. It would also make sense for them now they have a bona fide huge hit on their hands. If they're looking Mm. for someone or something to anchor this kind of second wave of Marvel movies they're going to make if it's to be believed. And, you know, it's going to happen that that, uh, Robert Downey Jr., Chris, Chris's, Evans and (laughs) Hemsworth, uh, Ruffalo and and, uh, what's he called? Who plays... Renner. Have, I, have I got them all? Renner. Yeah, Renner is the Ringo uh, of the group. Um, if they're all going to step away and they've earned their, they've earned their kind of uh, past, being put out to pasture, mm-hmm. um, then it would make perfect sense, sense for the uh, Black Panther to be the Iron Man of the second wave, I guess. People are behind yeah. him. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, he that that seems to be the nebulous plan. That's kind of what people are talking about might happen. But I think this the way in which this movie has been received will make those plans a lot more concrete going forward. Because yeah, now they have a very clear they have a very clear superstar of the the second wave of of Marvel. You know, whoever ends up joining him, like if it's going to be uh, Miss Marvel and Ant-Man presumably is going to hang around for a little bit because he's kind of a later addition. Uh, it certainly seems like he would be a great choice to be the leader, especially because he already has a really great selection of supporting characters that you can kind of bring over with him. Like if you get to Charlie, you also get Shuri, which is, uh, you know, a pretty good team to bring along because, uh, yeah, Letitia Wright is great in that role. It's I, I just want to talk about her because <laughs> I think... It's so hard in movies to kind of make someone seem like a joyful genius because mm-hmm. either that because so often it kind of if someone's like a genius they're tortured and if you make them seem like they enjoy the fact that they're brilliant at what they do it can come off as smug and I really appreciated how in this movie her whole role was she was just like really really amazing at the thing that she does which is you know making all this amazing technology and she always seems really really pleased to demonstrate it to people uh, and that struck me as a very uh, as very charming and very felt very real particularly in terms of like uh, how a little sister would interact with their brother mm, and it's that i really like how much the film leans into oh shit we've just lifted a whole scene from a james bond movie mm. where black panther's like turning up and uh, and his sister's like Oh, now this this suit, uh, kick it. Um, <laughs> it's exa- It's the cue scene, but like it really is aware of that and mm. it kind of makes it funnier. 
Yeah, you really get a sense that Ryan Coogler is really enjoy. He obviously loves movies, and he's really enjoying the fact he's been given a huge canvas on which to play with his love of movies. Of thinking, okay, yeah, this is you know, I get to do like you say my version of the Q scene. I get to do my version of James Bond going into a casino. And, you know, a fight breaking out. I get to do a, a huge car chase. You know, he's getting to do all of these things, which, you know, he didn't really, you know, there, were, there wasn't much room for elaborate car chases in Fruitvale Station and Creed. Mm. Uh, but here, you know, he's got license to do a shit ton of really exciting action. And uh, he doesn't disappoint in that regard. No, we always knew that he was a very dynamic filmmaker. In Creed, there is some seriously legit action, including that boxing match in... the three-round boxing match in Mexico, which takes place with one shot Mm. uh, and no cuts. Um, So he can do the kind of bravara stuff, which isn't just all, you know, flash and no substance. Mm -hmm. Um, And the the stuff... the, The fight in the casino is... Very, very good because it's it's uh, a large space and it makes manages to feel make a fight feel claustrophobic and and uh, also dangerous, uh, which is really nice. Although the one thing I could have done without was Stanley. I know we have to have Stanley and everything, but at this point, uh, I mean, I'm glad he didn't just turn up in Wakanda like with a with like <laughs> carrying like a tourist map and a camera or something. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I think it might be time to stop. Yeah, I my the thing I liked about his cameo, and I i don't know if this was intentional or not, but I like to imagine it was, the idea that Stanley's cameo is him taking money away from someone who had done something to earn it. <laughs> kind of, that, that feels like a fun, <laughs> you know, it could be read as a fun, subversive commentary on uh, his entire approach to taking credit for the things that he co-created with other people, but uh, I don't know if that's what they were going for or not. Mm. But, uh, yeah, it, it was one of the... Uh, at least they didn't give him, like, too much to do. Like, the absolute nadir for me of his cameos was, I think, in... I want to say Spider-Man 3, where they have him give Peter Parker a, t- a whole pep talk. Like, it's fine when he just shows up briefly. And this one, it's like, okay, it's a kind of a, a fun bit. Uh, and then you can imagine that you can just get shot to death in the ensuing mayhem. Mm, yeah, yeah. There's There's got to be a point at which... Well, I mean, th- there is a point at which he'll stop being in them, unless they've hmm. like shot his cameos for the rest of the films for eternity. They could they could so, just scan his face and CGI him into anything. Supposedly, they have shot several in advance in that kind of uh, expectation, but I don't know how true that is. But like the fact that he is, you know, he's a, he's getting on in years, and it's you know a lot of effort to fly him around the world to kind of take part in these scenes that they have backlogged some of them that can be slotted in that aren't necessarily that dependent on plot and location Mm. here's a question so obviously it's exciting to see ryan coogler do this Mm -hmm. um and it's exciting to see uh him bring a very personal superhero movie to the film uh to the screen is it something that like you want to see him do again or do you want to see him do something new? Because the problem is with this is I want to see more Black Panther. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I also want to see Ryan Coogler do as many different things as possible. And knowing how long these things take, mm. like if he's, if he agrees to do Black Panther two, that's him tied up for like the next, you know, three to four years, not making other movies. Yeah. I think, yeah, that is the trade off. But I, I think, you know, I, I am, I'm just happy to see him do more work. And if, I mean, this has demonstrated that he doesn't necessarily have to be ground down by the Marvel machine in the way that it felt like a lot of directors have been, where directors who have a personal stamp, like like Joss Whedon with the, the second Avengers movie, where he had to insert like a lot of extraneous mythology stuff just to keep the farmhouse stuff, which he clearly cared about more. Like This feels so much like a, a Ryan Coogler movie that if he wants to keep making Black Panther movies and he keeps bringing that distinct personal voice to it, then yeah, keep doing that. If at a certain point it stops being fun, then he can go and do something else. And the the hope at least is that the success of this gives him license to go off and do something like different and small and personal if he wants. But, but also, you know, it, it, he has experience working at such uh, uh, disparate ends of the budget spectrum at this point that you could see him 
you know, doing something small and quick and personal between the movies without too much difficulty in the way that someone like a like a Steven Spielberg does. Mm. You know, he obviously doesn't have quite the, you know, he doesn't have a production company uh, or a high, entire studio apparatus uh, dedicated to helping him make his specific projects. But, you know, he now has the uh, three considerably good and successful movies behind him that if he wants to break it with a bit of, you know, one for me, one for them, then, uh, you know, there is an apparatus in place that could make that happen now. Mm, yeah, yeah. Do you think there's going to be some knock-on effect from the success of Black Panther to um, A Wrinkle in Time? Because I obviously they are completely different movies made by completely different people who just happen to be black. But, but the, both Disney movies, though. Both Disney movies, that is a connection. But what I, the reason I bring this up is because I my Twitter feed is inundated with um, tweets of people saying, like from the cinema, saying that when the trailer for Wrinkle in Time dropped before Black Panther, people lost their shit over it because maybe mm. a lot of a lot of people seeing it on the big screen for the first time, maybe they're ramping up the marketing kind of as we go into the summer. Um, obviously, it it is a, a, a kind of a shoe-in to show before Black Panther. It feels like there's going to be a lot of goodwill taken from one to the next. Do you think that's something that is actually tangible or possible? I certainly think so. I think any time that you have a hugely successful movie and you put, you know, a, a distinctive trailer before it that or, or one that seems to have some sort of, you know, it, it, it's kind of like the Netflix idea, you know, the algorithmic idea of like you like this, maybe you would also like this, but you know, like something that feels akin to it in a certain way, you know, obviously both kind of fantastical stories, huge big budget movies centered around black protagonists two things uh, things that very rarely ever happen which are happening in close proximity to each other and the fact that you know a lot of people are being exposed to it for the first time or uh, they're, they're seeing it in the context of watching one movie that they're really excited about and that they'll have positive feelings about that you know that could carry over to it i think it could have a considerable knock-on effect just because that's how marketing is meant to work with these sort of movies you you'll see you know it's 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 if you go back to something like the Cloverfield trailer being attacked, attached to the first Transformers movie. You know, mm -hmm. the fact that that was before a hugely anticipated movie and it kind of, that they kind of connected to each other in a, in, in a generic way, you know, the fact they were both kind of big special effects driven monster movies. I think that that, that, that certainly could drive people to see, seek out a wrinkle in time and, and get more excited for it because, you know, they're, they're seeing, it's, it's attached to and it's kind of nebulously uh, connected to something that's a huge cultural hit. Mm, yeah, I really do hope that these those two movies... I'm not sure that A Wrinkle in Time has quite the brand recognition it does outside of America. Mm -hmm. um, but I would love to see those two be up there at the end of the year as like the top five movies like earnings wise because that would be huge yeah and and just in terms of trying to you know make more get more opportunities for black filmmakers and black stories to get out there and not to be you know so often pushed to the side in hollywood as being something that you know just tyler perry makes or mm -hmm. just movies that get made like like a Fruitvale station, you know, get made for a very small amount of money and are presumed to only appeal to a small audience. If you can basically say, and and that's you know, has been the way for such a long time, despite the obvious element that you know, black people watch movies, all kinds of movies. You know, they make up a huge in America at least they make up a huge percentage of the theatre going audience every week, and the fact that Hollywood so often ignores them or thinks that they are kind of this speciality audience that can only be handed kind of like crumbs every so often uh, is uh, not only kind of spectacularly insensitive, but makes like no sense from a business point of view. And, you know, it shouldn't have taken so long for someone to realize that what you really need to do is make a movie for all audiences, which just happens to be, have a, a you know a black cast because 
black people watch or movies that aren't about black people all the time, you can probably assume that white audiences and Hispanic audiences and Asian audiences and, you know, all of them will go and watch movies uh, with with black casts because the reverse has been true for decades. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, anything else that you kind of want to cover? Any particular scenes that really stood out for you in, in, in Black Panther? Um, I, I, whilst we know that the, the soundtrack is amazing, the actual mm. score is incredible. And yes. that's now two Marvel movies in a row, which have had very, very interesting, unusual scores. Mm. Yes, there was none of that. You know, we, we talked about it for every frame of painting thing of the scores feeling kind of uh, indistinguishable from each other or forming part of a, a kind of very bland kind of Hollywood-wide soundscape where all movies of a certain budget and scale and genre all sound the same. This There's lots of... Uh, of drums on the soundtrack which feel you know they get you very pumped up and excited all the way through you know because percussive uh, uh music is exciting by its very definition and uh, i think is it ludwig goranson who did the music is a he's a newcomer to the marvel uh audio sphere or whatever you want to call it he's someone who had worked with ryan coogler on his previous two movies and he kind of brought him in along with it uh, i think that accounts for it a lot is that you have someone who's coming in who isn't necessarily kind of embedded in the idea of like okay these are how these movies sound uh mm. you haven't like similar to mark mother's ball with uh with with thor ragnarok you have someone coming in who says okay i'm gonna do my own thing and uh that proving to be a lot better than just saying okay i would like something that sounds a bit like the score to terminate salvation or whatever mm-hmm. yeah yeah it's also in terms of behind the camera, um, Rachel Morrison, um, mm. the DP on this, does an incredible job of not just having the action and all the kind of special effects sequences be a kind of a blurry nightmare, but also making Wakanda feel like a vibrant, buzzing kind of place without saying, oh my God, look at all, how weird all this is. You know what I mean? Mm. It, and it the, all feels the- very natural. Yes, and working alongside also like the production designers and the costume designers in particular, mm. who are obviously taking all these different influences from different African cultures and making bringing them together to create something that looks distinctive. You you can tell who like the members of all the different tribes are, but it doesn't feel like a bland kind of pan African culture where you kind of add everything together and it ends up just feeling you know, kind of like samey or, or you know, kind of overly broad. There's a lot of specificity to how everyone is dressed and how people uh, kind of uh, uh, look. And the, particularly like Wakanda, you know, you can see the whole Afrofuturism thing where uh, it feels so distinctive in terms of, you know, Hollywood movies in general, but, yeah, you know, specifically within the, the superhero genre. Mm. And in terms of like costume design and, and production design, what I loved is is during the scene in which Black Panther is challenged the first time by the guy from mm-hmm. the, the Mountain Tribe, he, he, there's kind of this huge ceremony. Everyone kind of stood on the, the, the ledges on the mountainside in the waterfall, and there's lots of people dancing, lots of very distinctive tribes, and their costume and makeup is is you know beautifully defined. And then there's just two dudes you can see just wearing night high tops, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I was like. That's I th- first. I thought, oh, that's a continuity error. And then I was like, oh no, that actually makes perfect sense. Yeah, because yeah, it's uh, very clear. Well, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I was just like, um, yeah. Whilst this is this is kind of you know science fiction fantasy, it's it is yeah, it's now they have jokes about you know the Wizard of Austin stuff. <laughs> that's yeah. relevant. I get that reference. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, terrific movie. Really excited to see what Marvel does next. And also, I think we should also mentioned uh great to see angela bassett in a huge big movie i think probably the biggest movie of her career which is a, is a shame because she's someone who uh is not a shame that she's in a big movie but she should have been in big movies more often than she has been because uh she's pretty consistently great and she's great in this movie mm, yeah she is and it, how lucky they are to have you know such starry supporting cast like Forrest Whitaker's in this movie and you forget about mm. it and I think it's you forget about it because he's not dreadful in it mm. uh, and then uh, also Isaac DeBankhole who I didn't recognise because he has one of those big lip discs but, was that uh, him? yeah that's that's him yeah uh, ah. 
yeah, it's kind of like a thing. I was like, oh yeah, I guess when you cover up half of someone's face, it's kind of hard to recognize them. But uh, yeah, it was it was cool seeing him. Cool seeing uh, Daniel Kaluuya, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, Oscar nominee wasn't an Oscar nominee at the time they they'd shot it. Uh, I actually don't know the chronology. It kind of makes me wonder if he'd even shot Get Out at the point that they made this because these things take so long to make. But uh, yeah, it was super cool seeing him be in it and have uh, a really compelling role as well. Because because like initially, I think because I'm so used to like these cookie cutter roles uh, movies. Uh, from you know Marvel specifically and Hollywood in general, I thought, okay, he's going to turn out to have always been on Killmonger's side or whatever. But it ended up being his journey felt a lot more organic in that it was rooted in him, you know, a sense of of past trauma and disappointment in T'Challa's inability to kill Claw and kind of him slowly aligning himself with Killmonger. So it wasn't like, oh, you know, this is obviously you know the hero's seeming best friend, you know, probably going to turn out to be a bad one in the end. So I, I liked that his his journey was a lot less uh, predictable than, you know, even though beginning and end kind of felt, okay, yeah, that's more or less what I expected him to end up to be. The journey there felt different and new and interesting. Mm, yeah, it felt like he'd earned it. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So... As always, we end the episode with Shot vs. Shot Recommends, in which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think that you, the listeners, will enjoy as Matt as well. Matt, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Uh, so I'm going to recommend a film that I watched um, earlier today. Um, and full disclosure, it was made by um, some friends of mine, more specifically some friends of my wife's, who she went to drama school with. This is one of the great things about uh, being married to someone who went to drama school. She has lots of famous friends, <laughs> like people who have gone on to do great things. Um, um, but then also you have to kind of pretend to like a lot of these things um, <laughs> because you might run into people, which is uh, of no um, barrier here because uh, the film uh, that I'm going to recommend this week is a film called That's Not Me, a Australian comedy uh, directed by Greg Erdstein and starring Alice Fulcher, who also co-wrote the screenplay and produced the film. And uh, I don't have to pretend to like it because it's fucking brilliant. Um, and uh, I watched it today. It's just dropped on iTunes, uh, if anyone's interested, um, and you can rent the film there. It's a comedy with a massive, massive heart, but also is incredibly funny, um, about uh, a actress played by um, uh, Alice Vulture, who uh, has a struggling to make it in Australia, and she has an identical twin sister, um, who is making it, and making it more specifically in an HBO uh, TV show with Jared Leto. Uh, and whilst you might see feel that the, um, the identical twins uh, mix-up uh, of identities, uh, hilarious misunderstandings thing has been done before, um, uh, this kind of takes it to some really kind of cool and in sometimes weird places. Um, it's incredibly funny, Um and, you know, just, like, hugely, hugely charming and likeable. Um, and um, it's got, like, two or three C-bombs in there, uh, which is always nice. Because, nice. um, you know, you can't be... You can't have anyone accuse you of being, like, you know, too earnest. So <laughs> you may as well drop them in. If you're going to make a debut film, then uh, do it. I'd highly recommend seeing it, because I think those guys... I mean, The, the Guardian said that, like, they're Australia's Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig, which is, you know, high praise indeed. And, mm. you know, whilst that's lazy journalism, um, <laughs> you have to put these people in, in pigeonholes somehow. Um, and, you know, if you're looking for a comparison, that's pretty close. Wow, that sounds, sounds great. Uh, I'm also going to recommend something uh, Australian, weirdly enough, but uh, I'm going to recommend a video game. Ooh. Uh, uh, rarity for me, which is weird uh, if people know what my job is um, for me to recommend a video game. But I'm going to recommend a mobile game called Florence, which Ooh. is by uh, a company called Mountains, which is an Australian production studio and uh, is uh, put out, but distributed by Annapurna Digital, uh, the video game arm of Annapurna Pictures. Uh, they've got a it, video it, game arm. Mm, yeah, and they've started putting out some some really good stuff. They put out a game last year, I believe, called What Remains of Edith Finch, which showed up on a lot of end of game uh, best of lists. Uh, so Megan Ellison is is saving every part of every industry. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
But Florence is a, a mobile game. It's available for app for iPhone, uh, maybe Android as well, but definitely iPhone. And it is a interactive story about a young girl called Florence, who uh, and it's about her relationship with uh, a young man. And what's interesting about the game is that it is essentially a series of of mini games where you have to do things f- throughout Florence kind of da- Florence's daily life, like that it starts off with her lying in bed and her alarm clock going off and you have to hit the snooze button and then you have to hit it again in 15 minutes and then 15 minutes after that and you kind of follow her through her daily life and each part of her daily life is illustrated by some little mini game that you have to do on your phone Uh, and through that through advancing through each stage of of her life you are taken on this really sweet sad romance that she has with this this young man and uh, it's it's this really fantastic use of the mobile game format. You know, it, it is constantly teaching you how to play it in, in new ways, kind of shifting up its dynamics whilst, uh, and through that, you know, giving you that sense of like, how do I beat this game? You know, kind of engaging you that way, uh, tricking you almost into engaging in this kind of really achingly sweet love story. Uh, it's, about $3 on the US App Store, and it takes about maybe an hour, hour and a half to complete, but it is it is well worth your time. It is a really innovative and exciting use of you know, video games as a concept, really, certainly for anyone who isn't as uh, familiar with indie games. I think it's a really good first step into kind of seeing how uh, games can truly be about anything uh, mm-hmm. at this stage you know if you have a good idea and you know uh, uh and you know the skill to do it you can basically make a game out of anything and this one is is a really beautiful example of that uh so yeah so that's florence and it is uh, available uh from the app store mm, apple are going to be making a lot of money out of us this week <laughs> yeah uh yeah i didn't realize that you, you were also <laughs> recommending it um, as we say on this podcast, that people are probably listening to on their iPhones, um, <laughs> on the terrible, terrible Apple Podcast app. Yes, yeah, seriously, everyone, get off of that. That mm. that is that is the worst. There's lots of bad things that Apple do, but that that app is particularly bad. Uh, thank you all for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode of the show, then please uh, review us on the aforementioned terrible app. <laughs> Also, Stitcher, Player FM, uh, you can subscribe, uh, recommend us to your friends, all of which help us uh, grow our audience. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter. We are at SRS underscore podcast. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. In fact, we'll be back this week because we have a, a bonus episode, which you'll also see in your feed, in which we talk about Star Trek Discovery, uh, kind of a little catch up from our previous episode on it. But until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.